Welcome back to BSA by Design, a podcast about transforming healthcare, educational, and research facilities through expert design and insight. I'm your host, Brian Moore. Thanks for joining us again. This episode is the second in a mini-series diving into BSA Life Structure's three primary practices and our focus in these markets. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Scott Allen, our Learning and Discovery Practice Director, and David Libertori, a Learning Principal and the former Learning and Discovery Practice Director for BSA, about exactly what is learning. First, I'd like to introduce our guests. Scott Allen is an architect and joined BSA in late 2023 as Learning and Discovery Practice Director. He earned his bachelor's degree in architecture from Virginia Tech. Prior to joining BSA, Scott worked for Perkins & Will, Fentress Architects, The Beck Group, EYP, and was recently Senior Project Director at PAGE. David Libertor is an architect who joined BSA in 2016 as Director of Learning. He earned his Bachelor of Science degree in Design and Environmental Analysis from Cornell University. From there, he earned his Master of Science in Early Childhood Education from Wheelock College. After a year of graduate studies in architecture at North Carolina State University, David earned his Master's in Architecture from MIT. I'd like to welcome you both to BSA by Design. Thanks for joining me. Let's start with where each of you found your passion for architecture and learning and that market. Where did that come from? And I'll, I'll start with you, David. Well, for me, uh, it, it's it kind of rooted in two things, I think. Uh, I love to build build things. And then secondly, um, I, I come from a very extended Italian family. My grandparents were all immigrants. And um, so family was very important. And so finding a way to combine those kind of two loves um, led me to um, the you know architecture and the design of learning environments. Scott, what about you? Yeah, similarly, you know, I, I grew up outside New York City for a long time. My dad worked in Manhattan. I was always enamored with the buildings there, right? I'd go in several times a year and see the towers and wondered who worked in them, how the spaces were created, right? What made those buildings get to be what they are, right? And, you know, for the learning and education market, for me, similarly, that interest really came for me when, you know, I uh, started working very directly and, and, and seeing the structure of those campuses as I grew up, right? And and seeing where places where people learned and talked about ideas, I was always fascinated about how that happened. And, you know, just like like my fascination for, for design, I was really brought to it through the idea of how to create spaces for people to learn and to talk about ideas. Oh, that's really neat. Yeah. I mean, how can you not go to New York and be impressed with the architecture, right? David, you went to a very prestigious Ivy League school. What was your What was your time at Cornell like? Oh, my time at, as an undergrad was uh, fantastic. Uh, I was really so fortunate to, to go there. I, I had no idea what I was getting into, quite frankly. Um, but it was really a time of, um, I guess, sort of losing myself in order to find myself. So it was really about growth and expansion and change. You know, you know I mentioned that my one of my interests came from the fact of being from this sort of tight-knit Italian family, you know, but I was also from a very small town uh, of only about seven or 8,000 people. And so you, you show up at a place like Cornell and the choices were just immense. Um, I, I got to try a lot of different things and really expand my horizons um, and see a lot of people who weren't like me. 
Um, and that was really, it, it really opened my mind in a lot of ways. Sometimes it was a little bit difficult. It was a little overwhelming um, and um, got, you know, you get, you get a little lost, but not, not too far off the beaten trail, but it stretched me and um, was a fabulous education and um, I wouldn't trade it. And Scott, I know you're a Hokie. Can you share a little bit about your time at Vatech? Yeah, sure. So Virginia Tech, just like Cornell was for David, was a really seminal place in my life, right? Um, I didn't know what I was getting into either. I think that's probably a lot true for a lot of us to get into architecture, right? You just never know exactly what you're going to be exposed to. But one thing I knew when I was looking for a school was that I wanted to find a school that kind of married my interest in what I had learned and really kind of fostered for my time outside of New York City and my love that I had developed through high school for black and white photography, right? So I was developing my own film, making my own prints, doing all that in high school. And really wanted to find a place that could kind of bring not only my interest in assembling buildings and also my interest in art, right? And so the heritage of the Bauhaus education and Virginia Tech really provided me that outlet and really opened me up to a world that, honestly, I quite frankly never knew was even as deep as it is and got many great opportunities out of it. Got really a great time in Blacksburg, got to go to Riva Vitali in Switzerland and, and really studied there for, for six months and and even opened my eyes even further, right? And uh, it was just something that, you know, has set me forward on the path that I've been on throughout my entire career and wouldn't have traded in any way possible either. That's great. Those those individual experiences obviously shape uh, both of you, of course. But um, so post-college background before coming to BSA, uh, Scott, why don't, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, following my time at Virginia Tech, you know, I, I started my career here in Denver, Colorado, Worked for a big public uh, architecture firm named Petrus Bradburn. They really did mostly public work. So most people know them for the Denver International Airport. I worked on that project towards its end, the Broncos Stadium, and many other things. But I really didn't really settle into the firm and feel comfortable in the firm until I started working on the two original research buildings over at the Anschutz Medical Campus. That's really kind of where I found my interest really in higher ed and science kind of merging in practice for the first time. And... To be honest with you, I was pretty much hooked at that point and really wanted to work on that work going forward. Um, I then went on to spend 12 years out in California where I worked for Perkins and Will, focusing almost solely on higher ed and science and technology projects throughout my time there at institutions like UCLA, USC, and others uh, out in the West Coast. And then came back to Colorado uh, 10 years ago and had spent the last 10 years working at a couple different firms. Uh, but really working uh, not only to focus on higher ed and science and technology projects, but also to lead teams on big projects and develop strategies to build practices as a practice director. And really, that's the opportunity that I'm really thankful to be a part of at BSA as well. That's great. I, I love this idea of these winding paths that we take to get where we are at whatever time period is, right? It just It's eclectic and it turns and it weaves. Uh, David, how about you? Well, then then you will love my background. Winding is probably a good word. Um, unlike Scott, I did not do architecture uh, as an undergrad, as you know. So when I uh, first got out of school, I worked in admissions and counseling um, uh, for my alma mater, for Cornell, and then um, met someone who was an instructor at Tufts University who was designing environments for children. And I had done my senior thesis on designing a toy for children. So I... That was what I wanted to do. So I up and moved to Boston and did my master's in early childhood education and tried to start my own business designing exclusively for children. Um, did that for a few years, but it, things weren't progressing as quickly as I wanted. So I 
decided I needed to go back to school yet one more time, uh, at least. And, um, and that's when I got my architecture degree and got out of uh, school, worked in Boston uh, for a few years, and then made my way back to central New York, uh, worked with a firm there. And the early part of my career, the first half really was involved more with pre-K through 12 primary school design. Um, and then slowly I started doing higher education work um, and made my way south when the economy in New York State was completely in a dive and have been in North Carolina um, ever since, uh, working with several firms and now with BSA uh, and having um, played several roles with, with the firm, turning over the directorship of the learning practice to Scott and uh, focusing on some other things for the firm. That's great. And when th that's why I wanted to have you both on was to to talk about learning and let's let's kind of get to the heart of our discussion here. Let's let's talk about defining learning in terms of what it means to BSA. And David, you're you're as you said you just stepped out of this practice director role. Now you're a principal. What is learning? It, like define the market. What the world thinks learning is, um, if you look at my LinkedIn profile and I will warn Scott, he's going to get a lot of requests to take care of career growth uh, within the firm um, as director of learning. But that's not what it means. What it means is it's a focus on the activity that happens in the spaces we design. So for us, that is essential because of course we want to do beautiful buildings. Of course we want to do buildings that, that um, last over time, that inspire people, um, that create spaces that people can feel good about being in. But it's what actually occurs in them that is 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 critical to us, and and one might think that that would be essential to to all designers, um, but it's not. Um, um, I, you know, I think everybody wants to do good design, but but to us, if if the the spaces don't enhance the activity and the experience that uh, is planned to happen in them, then then it's really not successful. So for us, learning means creating those spaces where the activities around education are elevated. Excellent. So, I, and I'd like to hear from both of you on this. Um, Scott, can you discuss the role and the importance of architecture in creating and inspiring and functional learning environments on college campuses? Yeah, well, you know, and also to kind of partially off, piggyback off of what David just said about learning environments, certainly you know, learning environments have changed, right? I mean, you, many years ago, they were an individual pursuit, right? You sat in a 300-person classroom, you listened to a lecture, and and then you kind of maybe had a study group or something afterward. Now that's all merged, right? That is what we're seeing is these environments are really becoming ones in which, you know, these learning classrooms and learning laboratory spaces that are there for students are really much more dynamic, engaging, and collaborative. There's a need for small huddle group spaces. There's a need for class, classrooms that are active learning or even seminar size spaces. And, and there's been lots of studies that have shown that these spaces need to be uh, within the classroom and learning environments for students to be more successful. They actually, that engagement is actually bringing it also more closely alignment with the, in alignment with the uh, real world examples that they're gonna be dealing with once they get out of school. And so it's a really fascinating thing. And so as designers, I think we're challenged, right? It used to be really, Pretty easy. Oh, you do a 300-person auditorium. You put a stage up there. You have a lectern. You can have someone speak and 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 give those ideas. Now it's a much more dynamic need. Technology plays a much larger role, right? The need for collaborative spaces outside the classroom for 
for teaching that occurs outside the classroom, right? It's an education that, that, that we sort of saw in architecture school, but now has bled over into many other parts of education, right? Where this active learning environment is such a critical part of what we're creating for that inspiring space to occur. And not only that inspiring space to occur, but for those inspiring exchange of ideas and, and concepts between the students and the instructors. I think that, that what Scott said about the evolution of learning spaces is really, uh, really key and critical. Since I, you know, entered the profession, you know, no longer do you have to tell students to put their, or when we started, you didn't have to tell students to put their cell phone down and, and focus on class. So, you know, the things really have changed, but I think the other thing that's really exciting too is, is this, this notion that we're not sure where it's going. And, and so trying to look into the future is, is really exciting about how do we, how do we develop a, a framework uh, with, a, with a building, with a facility that allows that change to keep happening? So let's talk about a couple of these complexities that you were discussing. How does architecture, David, in higher education influence student engagement and their success? I think it influences it. Uh, in the most positive sense when it creates a sense of place. And that can be on various levels. You know, if you're dealing with, uh, you know, a private institution that has a rich and long history, that sense of place may be totally ingrained. And so when you do a new facility, you have to not only f figure out how to fit in because you don't want to just mimic what's there, but you have to think about how to enhance it for the future. And then likewise, in, in institutions like community colleges, it's, a, it's in some ways a very different challenge, but you're dealing with a commuter population in general that, that is only there for a certain uh, amount of time during the day. But you still, and, and in some ways it's even more important to try to create that sense of place through the architecture so that students want to be there and, and can share with each other and find the camaraderie that you can get on a campus when you're living there. Scott, you touched on a little bit about the evolution of these spaces uh, over time. How, how has the learning and design process for higher education evolved other than just some of the technology components that you're mentioning earlier? Yeah, no, I think, you know, that's a really important part of this, right? Because I think when, when we were looking at the, you know, auditoriums with the fixed seats, I think those spaces were ones that were kind of used only during a six to eight hour window of time on the classrooms. You know, now, now we're looking at spaces and students are there full time. So it's not only the space that's the active learning classroom that the students are in, right? Or a seminar room that's for 10 or 15 students with an instructor, right? It, that, that, that the teaching is going on. It's the spaces outside of it. It's the collaboration spaces. It's the huddle rooms that those students are working within. Oftentimes those faculty are then milling around outside of the classroom time to see what those students are working on, talking to them about their projects, talking to them about how they're studying and what they're looking at and helping to facilitate, right? The in instructor's role has evolved a little bit within that too, right? They're more of a facilitator in these spaces. And, you know, because what the students are doing is they're teaching each other as much as the instructors are teaching each other to the students. And so that's a really interesting dynamic that's going on. It's actually broadened the way that the education is being being delivered. And, and it's also made it much more dynamic. I think it's actually made it a much more enticing and, and an inviting environment to learn in than it used to be. That's really interesting. Uh, you bring up a good point about the evolution of 
of, of the professors or the instructors have now turned into facilitators. And I think that's, that's pretty fascinating. Scott, from your perspective, tell us about some of that flexibility and technology integration and some of the collaborative features of modern education architecture. What are, what are some of these key things that clients are looking for in the learning space? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, in those spaces, I mean, you know, it, we, we can talk about the classroom first and we can talk about some of the spaces outside the classroom maybe after that that, that sort of apply to this, right? So in the classroom, we're not very dissimilar to what we're seeing in, in, you know, the real world, right? We're seeing rooms that need flat screen TVs for presentations to, for students to make to each other to go report out. Oftentimes in these classrooms, the active learning classrooms, or even in the seminars where they have the small groups that get together, what they're asking is the students to go come in, they give them a challenge or they give them a problem to solve at the beginning of the class. And then they're asked to report out about that as a, as a learning, as a part of it at the end of the class or, or two classes later, right? And they have that process. And it's a very interesting thing. I mean, you have the need for that. You also have sometimes uh, hybrid classrooms, right? Where you have students that are not in the room, but are on camera that are also participating in the class for some reason, because there are those kind of classes that occur. And you, or you have a faculty member who is presenting something that is not in the classroom, and then that same process occurs. So technology is, is driving it from the, the flat screens to actually amplification. I mean, there's microphones that you have now at your, at your desk for your small groups. Who would ever thought you have a microphone in that kind of a process, right? Well, and even just the last 15 to 20 years, these technology changes, you know, with we often focus in general about the, the differences before the pandemic. I mean, Zoom existed before then, right? But it, it feels like it's shifted everything. And that's that's definitely you're seeing that in the educational spaces as well. Agreed. And I would also say, you know, even even depending on the curriculum and even it's crossover into a lot of the curriculums, what you're seeing is besides these huddle spaces is the desire for students to have maker spaces and laboratory spaces for them to actually work and, and collaborate within for whatever they're doing to manifest it sometimes. Because a lot of what they're doing is actually bringing something and an idea more to a real kind of end product than it had been before in terms of theory. I, I want to ask you, David, how do you, and both of you really, but we'll start with David, how do you see sustainability and green building practices integrated into the design and construction of college campuses? There's a couple levels to this discussion. There's the sustainability movement has, has changed the building codes. It's changed the the design of systems, and and a lot of times you don't see that you know on a day to day basis. But it's behind the scenes happening, and so it's made our buildings more efficient, uh, and hopefully uh, longer lasting. You do, however, sometimes see certain features that maybe you wouldn't have seen in buildings before because um, owners may be trying to meet uh, the requirements of a lead uh, approval or a well-being approval. And so you may see things like showers or bicycle racks or things in, included in a, in a program that might normally not be included. But to me, that's not the essence of, of the change that, that sustainability is driving. I think where what's important about the sustainability movement is how do the buildings fit into the landscape in which they're located and, and be something that doesn't just dominate that landscape, but fits in with it and makes a, a positive gesture for the future. Um, because we have the ability to dominate the landscape. We, you know, we see it, you know, in, in certain kinds of developments that 
sort of disregard the environment and just sort of, you know, wipe it out as a clean slate. And, you know, that's unfortunate. So I think our challenge and I think the uh, impetus from sustainability is to create environments that are sustaining in a way that they're generative and that they add to the place that they're a part of rather than just taking from it or dominating over it. Yeah. And there's just one additional thought, which is, you know, for one of the reasons that I think a lot of us love this type of work is the legacy that it leaves, right? These are buildings that we're creating that are 50, 100 year buildings, hopefully, right? That's the intention, right? So if we're, you know, if we're looking at sustainability and it's, you know, it's legacy, it's incumbent upon us as designers to design buildings that, that address the environment in that way, right? That don't take away too much from the environment, that try to try to think about its use of energy, its use of, of like David said, the landscape and its massing and all these other are aspects of it. Really, truly, it's, it's about thinking about what are those buildings want to do and how they want to go and operate for the next 50 years. Um, and it is an exciting challenge. I mean, schools are looking at really these campuses and trying to transform them and thinking about how they can be, um, you know, less energy hogs, less water usage, all these different things that are coming to the forefront, because those are all things that are going to be challenges as we go forward in the next 50 years. They're challenges today. They're going to be bigger challenges. Let's talk about the student and user experience. David, how does the architecture and design of these buildings enhance the overall student experience? Hopefully it improves their lives. Um, obviously that's part of our mission um, and it, 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 we take that to heart. And so with the, the buildings we design um, and that opportunity is real uh, when, you, when you design a facility. There are plenty of buildings that we can, we use in a daily basis, various kinds of public or private spaces that they're just there, let's put it that way. And they don't necessarily enhance the spirit. But I, I really think that, you know, it's kind of like the mind, body, spirit. If you can think about that in the creation of the facilities and, and design them in a way that creates an outcome that supports those aspects of the human experience, then it'll improve the lives of those who use it. Um, and I don't think that's cliche. I don't. I don't think it matters where where you stand on on you know Darwinism or anything like that. I think there's both a a you know physical component that that affects us on a daily basis, and it makes a difference. Um, and we can live longer, better lives if the facilities we spend a lot of time in are better are well designed. Right. I, I would I would assume somebody's going to perform a little better, uh, even if they're just studying, if they're in a brightly lit natural environment, uh, maybe some greenery around, you know, things like that, as opposed to four concrete walls, which is somewhat of the experience that I had, right? Like if an environment didn't matter, then we would all be satisfied with the way our ancestors lived in, in facilities 200, 200 years ago or thousands of years ago. But we seek to improve that experience, and therefore the places we live and work and play in matter. And, and it does affect, they have an effect back on us. So, Scott, with this kind of holistic approach in mind, and what are some of the things, and I was going to ask about the importance, but really we're, we're kind of already getting to why it's important. What are some of the things that we do to create spaces for social interaction, well-being, and community in a campus setting? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And, and it's really funny because, you know, as David was talking about, it's the live, work, play, right? That line is being blurred all the time, right? We're seeing even in, in residence halls, right, that you're having education spaces at the base of your residence hall, right? Where you're having significant, you know, study spaces that are there, right? Classrooms, right? So you're finding that, you know, those lines are being blurred all over campus, but that's what students want. It's what students need because as we talked about earlier in these classroom spaces, it's really a 24 hour kind of an experience. It's no longer just coming to your class and going to see your instructor twice a week, three times a week, whatever it is, seeing them during your office hours, all that kind of thing. It is, it is about really that the whole experience and that whole experience is really transforming that. And wellness goes into that too, right? We're finding those wellness spaces creeping into our buildings in different ways too, right? Um, where we're, we're actually creating corridors or, or ways for stairs for people to be able to do that and engage the building versus going up and down elevators at times. And that is really intentional, right? Because that, those collaborations or those kind of what we like to call serendipitous meetings that happen between the students and the faculty and those things that are informal are as critical as some of the classroom experience, right? And creating that community. And it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a circle, right? The students, the faculty, the research, all the things that are going on in the classroom experience is, is all really kind of interconnected with each other in that way. And we're seeing that in the way we're having to design our buildings, having to integrate those functions into our buildings. And I think it's actually making it stronger. We're, we're creating, you know, not only little neighborhoods sometimes, but we're creating a, a bigger kind of holistic kind of place and a more, Dave was talking about placemaking earlier, that placemaking is is only going deeper and getting better and, and and providing more relevance and hopefully you know people look back in 20 30 years from now and going hey that was a pretty good idea you know the way those people were thinking about bringing all those things together making it more kind of holistic and more rounded together is is way better than it was where it was siloed before it was like you know in a separate building for those things now it's all happening in one place so we've been i'm going to wrap up here with a final question but we've been talking a lot about a little bit of the evolution and, and kind of the present tense of, of the learning space. Let's look a little bit to the future. Uh, so David, I'll ask you first, what are some trends or innovations that you foresee in architecture and design that will continue to shape the learning practice in the years to come? I would point out maybe two things. One is maybe the obvious one, it's data and technology. Data is infusing itself into, I think, all kinds of industry and, and, it's, and it's making its way into higher education. It's always been there in a lot of ways in terms of the research that happens on certain campuses. But now it's I think it's starting to affect the design. And 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 like a lot of industries, the universities and colleges right now are are looking hard at themselves and, and the way they operate in order to survive. And so therefore they need to understand things like ROI and, and therefore they're becoming more and more data driven. And so I think as designers, we need to be paying attention to that and to, and to look to that in the future uh, and feed into how we can support uh, results um, that can be proven um, with data. The other, the other thing I would, the other trend, I guess, is a little bit um, not opposed to that, but a little softer than that. And that is, I think, holistic thinking. Integrated solutions uh, are, I think, the way of the future. Um, you know, Scott talked about the creating those um, places where learning occurs informally as well as formally and, and blurring the lines. And in order to create that kind of, those kinds of spaces, 
you need to have holistic thinking because you need to not just be saying, oh, how do I design the best classroom in this building and put 10 of them in there and make it the most efficient hallway? You need to think about if somebody has two different classes in there at different times of day, do they spend the rest of their time in the building? And if so, you have to create those places for them. And those aren't necessarily in the program. And so you need to have that kind of holistic and integrated thinking as you're looking for solutions and design solutions to, to create better environments. Yeah, I think the, the only other thing I would add to it is um, two ideas. One would be really around the idea of trying to find ways to help schools help foster and continue to foster student success, right? That's been their biggest, one of their biggest challenges, right? And student success is, is a broad term. It can be applied to a lot of things, but some of their biggest challenges are trying to find ways that it can be affordable for them to go there, right? For, for them to be able to, and, and David talked about the student that might be in the same building all day long and, and providing those spaces of respite, those spaces of, of where they can meet friends and have a meal, whatever that happens to be uh, within that same building, which might not be a part of a program, but is really critical, right? And, and trying to find it in a way that, that it makes sense for the population that's coming there. Um, I think the other side of that is trying to find ways that they are successful because they feel safe on the campus, safe in the building, safe in their spaces, safe not only to talk about their ideas and to talk about what their education challenges or what they're trying to focus on, but safe in the community, right? And I think that's a really big part of what, what they're facing uh, at higher edu education institutions. And, and I think we have to be very cognizant of that as we design our spaces, design our buildings, and and, and think holistically, like David was saying a minute ago, uh, to really think about how we incorporate that into our projects, into our campuses, as we start to do planning and, and other things going forward. That's great. Well, I want to thank you both for joining me today. Um, I, I know based on your roles and the quality of this discussion, I'll have you back on again in the future. But uh, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. I'd like to thank Scott and David for joining us again on this episode of BSA by Design. Hopefully, you've learned a little bit about our learning practice. And in our next episode, we'll cover the discovery practice with one of our principals, Derek West. If you're interested in learning more about BSA Life Structures, we encourage you to visit our website at bsalifestructures.com. There's a link in the show notes to contact us for more information. Be sure to subscribe to BSA by Design wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And we've got more content and stories to share through various platforms. So be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and X. That's going to do it for this episode. Join us again next time on BSA by Design. <laughs>